Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit Warfare podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and in this episode, I've dug back through the Dan Snow's History Hit archive to pull out, and I probably shouldn't say this, but it's one of my favourite episodes that Dan has ever done. It's with New York Times best-selling author Robert Harris, who talks about the story behind the V2 rocket. He's written an amazing novel on the topic, and he cuts between those who are launching the rocket and those on the receiving end. Those of you listening who are interested in both the technical details and the human costs of war are going to find this one fascinating. So here is Robert Harris on the V2. Robert, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. A pleasure, Dan. Lovely to be here. I have read two of your books this summer. I obviously read very kindly. You sent me your, your V2 book, but I also picked up your Papal Conclave book and it, they both of them left me feeling you know, hugely inferior. Your grasp of such different periods and different vibes. How long is your, what is your research process? Well, for uh, Conclave, it was uh, about six months and for V2, probably a little bit longer because I've been thinking about writing the book for four years. I mean, I was doing other things. I just finished Conclave when I started when I had the idea for it. But I immerse myself in everything that I can read and I go to places if I possibly can. And that's the pleasure of it, really. The research is uh, just going into another world. Is, I don't know, it suits my temperament. And do you feel you're on pretty comfortable ground now with the Third Reich? I mean, you've written quite a few now. Is it easy to return? And, and you, you have a sort of working knowledge of the SS and things, or is it, is it, do you like striking out into new territory? Well, I, I certainly do know from Fatherland days, which was a lot of research. I really, at that time, I think I did know quite a lot about the social structure of, of the Third Reich and how it worked. And yeah, the information has stood me in good stead. On the other hand, of course, this is quite a technical book and I didn't know much about rockets and so on. I knew about Berlin, but I didn't know much about rockets. Yes, well, you very you get the word parabola in, which is one of the greatest words in the in the English language. <laughs> yes, it's great. I mean, it reminded me of writing another of my earlier novels, Enigma, in that I had to try and get my head around mathematics, uh, which is not something I'm particularly good at. But uh, I glim- briefly glimpsed how an Enigma machine worked and how it was broken. And with this, I did briefly glimpse how you could calculate the trajectory of a rocket. Well, you made me briefly glimpse it, so I, I assumed you were you were fully on top of it. What I enjoyed about this book was learning 
the politics of the V2 programme. I mean, was it more expensive than the Manhattan Project? It was, yes. And, and obviously, because the German war economy was much smaller than the Americans, the, effectively, the Germans spent far more on developing what was, in the end, a spectacular and astonishing technical achievement, but of very little war-winning potential at all, in fact, none whatever. So it was one of the great wasted resources of all time in terms of what was done. It, it, it repaid itself, ironically, 25 years later when the Americans landed on the moon because the Werner von Braun obviously headed that technology programme and he used it was based on the V2, essentially. To the victor. So the Germans successfully, the Third Reich put the first man-made object into space, well, by some, by some definitions. But then what I liked about it, I didn't realise that actually even within... The third right. You you say that elements of the Gestapo and the SS were bloody furious about this waste, but they could see that von Braun had actually quite a different agenda. He wasn't that interested in winning the war. He was very interested in putting someone in space. Yeah, that's absolutely right. One can be cynical about von Braun, and he was certainly quite amoral. He reminds me rather of Albert Speer, who was a friend of his. I think they were quite similar men. But he was not really a Nazi. He was just a fanatic for getting into space. And, uh, yeah, the... Uh, the SS woke up at about 1942 to the fact that this enor- already this enormous project was about to go get even bigger because Hitler was about to back it as a response to Stalingrad. And from that point on, the SS took very close notice. And once the British had bombed Benamonda, it was the SS who really took over because they built the factory and the, and the new testing ground for it. And they had by that time already monitored von Braun and various other scientists uh, talking disparagingly about the war, saying that they would lose it, the V2 wasn't a proper weapon, uh, the main thing was to think about the post-war world. And von Braun and several others were arrested and held by the Gestapo for two weeks. And only Speer's direct intervention with Hitler managed to get them released. Uh, they were pretty lucky not to be shot, in fact, I would say. And this... You know, this was a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card, in a way, for von Braun at the end of the war. He could always turn around to the Americans and say, well, look, you know, they came after me as well. Talk to me about von Braun, because he is not the narrator of your book, but in in some ways a, a central protagonist. And he is aristocratic, he's glamorous, and obsessed with space from the cradle. Yes, I mean, he's a figure in the novel, and I, my invented, my German rocket scientist, is a close friend of his from the age of 16 onwards, because that's really when von Braun started getting into rockets, fooling around with them. He had made a rocket-powered pram, I think, and sat in it and went hurtling down the street. And then they moved to a test facility, which they got, test facility really, just a scrap of waste ground to the north of Berlin, where they used to play around with rockets. And von Braun's uh, father had been Minister of Agriculture in the von Papen government just before. Hitler came to power and was well connected and he seems to have spoken to the army and the army came and had a look at what these kids were doing and they were interested enough to start putting money into it and then when Hitler came to power and money was no object essentially for the Wehrmacht then really the Luftwaffe and the army put a huge amount of money into developing this facility at Peenemunde And the thing about von Braun was that he was charismatic, he was good-looking, he looked like a kind of archetypal Aryan Superman, really. He was not only a good engineer himself, a a dirty-hands engineer, as they call them in Germany, that is, he worked in the Borsig locomotive factory, he knew how to put things together, but he was also a brilliant project leader, I mean, assembling a vast team and organising them, and a salesman. And this combination of qualities was really what powered the whole project, so I, I find him a, an absolutely f- 
fascinating figure. Lucky uh, in the end not to be prosecuted for complicity in war crimes, but then he had the key to the technology that everybody wanted in 1945. I want to come to sort of crimes and his culpability in a minute, but how, do, you give the, you give the impression in the book. I mean, he was ve- he was very interested in going to space, and he didn't really care who he had to work with. Where do we get that impression from? And, and also, what was he thinking when he developed these rockets? He wasn't prioritising a weapon that could destroy central London, was he? No, no, not at all. I mean, he was genuinely, you know, a fan of science fiction, the Fritz Lang film Frau im Mond. He said in, I think it was 1928, or certainly he said, the man who will walk on the moon has, has now been born. And it was, in fact, about the same time that Neil Armstrong was born. He, he you know, he was a visionary. But he was more than willing to play the part to get the resources for the project. So he joined the Nazi party in 1937. He was given uh, honorary rank in the SS. And uh, Himmler certainly, I wouldn't say took him under his wing, but certainly in, inserted himself into von Braun's life. And von Braun, I think, simply regarded this as the price you had to pay if you were going to get on in the Third Reich, just as you had to join the Communist Party if you were going to get anywhere in the Soviet Union. I don't think he was an ideological Nazi, but I think he was uh, willing to turn a blind eye to the crimes. He was a technocrat, essentially, and in a way a genius, I suppose. And and I think that geniuses regard themselves as not bound necessarily by ordinary human laws. Well, I think we may have a few geniuses at work in the uh, British political system at the moment, self-identified. Lasers are often said to be a sort of technology without a use. What stage did von Braun kind of go, I know we can use rockets to deliver munitions? Like, you know, what was there a sort of, was there a eureka moment? It was conceived as a, a weapon right from the start. I mean, you know, from the moment that von Braun and his team, small, very small, two or three to begin with, went to the Kummersdorf military proving ground where the Germans tested ammunition. From that point, it was pretty clear that they were thinking about a a weapon. Uh, the man who was put in charge of the programme, Dornberger, Walter Dornberger, was an old artillery man from the First World War, and his obsession was with the Paris gun, you know, that shelled Paris and I think flew about 60 miles, 70 miles, I'm not sure, but something like that, th- lobbing projectiles. And so they sort of saw the V2 as this kind of extension of that from the beginning, which was kind of crazy because it could never carry more than a one-tonne payload and a Lancaster bomber could carry six tons, a single bomber. And they were limited with the size of rocket they could build because they needed it to be transportable on the roads and the rails. So the British had a nightmare that the Germans were building a a 40-ton rocket with a 10-ton warhead. The V2 was a kind of fully laden 12-ton rocket with a one-ton warhead. And that was lucky for us. But it was never going to be, and I'm sure von Braun knew perfectly well, it was never going to be a particularly effective weapon. It couldn't be radio-guided because they worked out correctly the British might be able to jam the radio guidance system. So it was ballistic, which meant that although they had very sophisticated gyroscopes to control the flight, control the rudders and the fins and so on, it was a pretty crude weapon. They lobbed it at um, Charing Cross Station, and anything within five miles of Charing Cross Station was considered on target. Well, you know, it, they crashed into the North Sea near Aldborough, they crashed in St Albans, they crashed, you know, it went all over the place. And we were very lucky, the British were very lucky, that it didn't actually hit any of the great buildings in Whitehall or Westminster. But fortunately, you know, it, it tended to either overshoot or undershoot. 
it was impossible to interdict. Yes, you couldn't do a thing. It was launched from mobile trailers. That was the stroke of real genius because the British thought it would be launched from a huge Hitlerite bunker, which is what Hitler himself wanted. But they made it, they put it on mobile trailers and it could be launched from woods, a small clearing in the woods. It only needed a, a platform five feet wide. So it was impossible to spot it from the air. It took about three hours to fuel it and for it to take off. It took five minutes to hit London from the coast of Holland. It reached a height of 60 miles. It was travelling at 3,500 miles an hour. And by the time it hit London, it had slowed slightly, but it was still twice the speed of sound. So you wouldn't even see it from the ground when it was coming in. It was too fast. And there was no way of shooting it down. There were, you had insufficient warning and there was no way you could hide and you never knew where it was going to land in any case. So it was a, it was a terror weapon that it was impossible to stop. It had absolutely no impact whatsoever on the course of the Second World War. No, I think it's fair to say that the only impact it might have had is the diversion of resources, which the Germans might have been better used, better put into tanks or uh, aircraft. So it, it may even have shortened the war slightly because the resources were huge. I mean, five, six billion dollars worth of resources in the money of that time. It didn't deliver a big enough payload to make a real difference. They fired 1,300 of them at London. Hitler had wanted to fire 10,000, although at one point they were building them one every 90 minutes, they could still they could never reach such a, an arsenal, an armada of V2s as that. And it's, it didn't kill many people relative to the effort. It killed in London 2,700 people, which is a lot of people, but it's nothing compared to what Bomber Command were doing every night over, over German cities. It did do a lot of damage because it struck the earth so fast that the shock waves radiated out as much as a quarter of a mile. And it's said, an almost unbelievable figure, that 600,000 buildings were damaged by V2s and that it was a major contributory factor to the post-war housing shortage. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you mentioned it. There are people that killed on the ground of the UK. I mean, it may well have killed more slave labourers uh, um, in in the in the factories and conditions in which it was it was made. Because by the end of the war, they and you you, hit, you refer to this in your book. It was an, you know appalling scenes in the kind of underground factories where they were constructed. Yes, the plan originally had been to build the V two at Peenemunde, where the, where it was actually being developed, and they did have the first of three huge factories, assembly buildings, going up when the RAF bombed it. Well, it was clear that they'd have to move from there uh, after the summer of nineteen forty three. So the SS had access to this factory, or well, it wasn't then a factory; it was a mine with with mine shafts about a mile long tunnels and it was in the Harz mountains central germany completely impregnable for allied attack they built this factory by using maybe 40,000 slave laborers they simply brought people in from concentration camps all around gave them no accommodation no shelter of any sort and just made them work until they dropped until they had dug tunnels right the way through this mountain with galleries. And these were giant. These, were, these had to be higher. The V2 was 46 feet high, and these tunnel roofs were higher than that. They were 50, 60 feet high and as wide. So it was a giant project. And 20,000 uh, men died, most of them during that construction process, because they were worked to death, and they typhus ran through, through them all, and it was a really serious war crime. I should think the biggest slave labour project in, in modern European history. But it worked. I mean, raw materials came in one end on railway trains and finished V2s went out the other. It was an astonishing achievement in the fifth year of the war to build a factory to build ballistic missiles from scratch, but at, a, at an appallingly savage cost. Four to five times as many people were killed building the factory as were killed by the rockets that the factory produced. And now let's talk about von Braun. I mean, he, he knew all that. I mean, he was well. He was head of production, and he had a fa- he had an office at the factory. So it's pretty hard to uh, imagine that he somehow didn't didn't notice thirty or forty thousand people building it. And so he is deeply complicit in that case. At the end of the war, without I don't want to give away the end of the book, but. There's a sort of beauty parade where the poor old British, the poor old declining British Empire thinks, oh, we might launch a massive rocket programme. And they try and convince him with a few dry sandwiches to come to the UK when it's obvious he's going to go to the US. Is that correct? Yes. In September 1945, the closing chapter of the novel, Von Braun came to London with some senior engineers to be wooed by the British. They'd actually really already done the deal with the Americans. And it was pitiful. The Americans captured 100 V2s. The British had, I think, two or three. And as one of the characters says, we have the craters. That's effectively what the British share of the spoils. And uh, they were lodged, the scientists flew from Munich, they were lodged in uh, Wimbledon in an army facility and were driven through Wandsworth, which was very badly hit by the V2, 
to the war to the air ministry and as and they stopped at traffic lights next to a bomb site that had been caused by a v2 and von braun was inquiring about the the strike and re- regretful that all the debris had been cleared because he couldn't properly see how the v2 had hit london and that's the sort of man he was you know quite dispassionately and coldly in a country that had been hit badly by this weapon, inquiring about it. And yes, he obviously turned down the British offer. And von Braun and more than, certainly more than 100 scientists went to New Mexico, to the proving grounds where they just tested the atom bomb. And their job essentially was to develop an American V2, which they could put an atom bomb on the end of, which is what he proceeded to do. But again, always with space in mind. His culpability, the Americans have said, well, that, that's them to the break. Well, I think, yeah, I think in those days there was a totally different attitude to it. I mean, obviously he would deny any knowledge of war crimes. There was quite a well-attested case of him hitting one of the slave labourers who was um, standing on part of the fuselage or something, or at least this, I think he was a Frenchman, claimed that Von Braun had hit him. But otherwise there was nothing, there was no direct link and I think the Americans kind of shut it down. I mean, that you know, they needed these guys. The Russians were now the enemy. The Russians had got captured Pienemunder itself, and they had a man called Grotrup, who was, uh, who was a communist when he was at Pienemunder, who worked on their uh, space programme. So, you know, it was realpolitik, and it wasn't until the 1970s that people really began to pay attention to, the, to what had happened at Nordhausen and the Dora facility. And then von Braun might have been in trouble if things had gone on, but he died in the 1970s. Arthur Rudolph, who was a very senior man in the Pienemunde programme and then in NASA, did actually have to leave America to uh, avoid extradition. So it, it, history caught up with them at the end, but interestingly not, interestingly, not until they had landed the man on the moon. You're very careful in the book to say that all the events you describe are true. Without, I don't want to, I'm being sensitive, I don't want to ruin the book, but they did... Did they fire the V2s at the the British team? Because I remember Rommel saying, please fire the V2s at places like Portsmouth, where the supplies are heading into France. Or, But they just they just hammered London, did they? They were just a sort of terror weapon. It was a terror weapon. It was a crude weapon. You couldn't, I mean, you know, it's like, you know, barely hit a barn door with it, as it were. You know, you needed a huge area, something of the size of London, to be sure of getting, you know, missiles onto it. Interestingly, the one time they had to suspend the firing at London was during Operation Market Garden, when Kamler, the SS man in charge, the general in charge of the whole thing, was very nearly caught by the Allies. And they pulled out of The Hague and moved further up the coast, and they couldn't hit London. They were at the very extreme edge of the range, as it was, and they fired at Norfolk. I mean, can you think of a more pointless thing to do with a 100,000 mark rocket than to lob it at Norfolk? But that's what they did. And then when Market Garden failed, they were able to move back into The Hague. And that's really when the intensive bombardment of London started, which is what I reflect in the novel. That's when they were getting up to seven, eight, nine rockets being fired a day. And in response to that, the British came up with this scheme of sending eight WAF officers to newly liberated Belgium, which was 70 miles to the south of uh, the point where the rockets were being fired from. Here they installed high-looking radars, which meant that very briefly, for a few seconds, they could, they could plot the trajectory of the V2 after it had taken off. And when they had the point of impact in London, 
they could use these two coordinates and calculate back the parabolic curve to the point where the rockets had been launched. That was the theory, and a description of that in an obituary of one of the women involved is what made me want to write the novel. I just thought that was a fantastic story. I'll be interested for you as a novelist. I find as a history broadcaster recently, I'm focusing more and more on the role of women in the Second World War, and I assume that I'm just being influenced by what's going on around me, the dialogue in our culture. Is that something that attracted you to about attracted you about this story? The fact that you've got forgotten, overlooked women doing a you know extremely important job very near the front line in, in a way that perhaps when we were growing up, we didn't think about women in the Second World War. I think to some degree that's true. Most of my books are about people who are outsiders, slightly in big organisations, you know, pushing against things, finding it difficult. And for me, it's a, I've never really written a book where the woman has such a strong role in it. And for me, one of the attraction was that this would be a person who was pushing against the organisation, as it were, and that one is immediately sympathetic to someone in that position. It wasn't that I had a political agenda, that, you know, I want to highlight the role of women in the war. I was just naturally quite interested in a young woman with obviously quite a sheltered life, taken to a grass runway in Belgium, driven into this newly liberated town in the middle of winter, in the darkness, billeted on a strange family. The Germans had only just left and there were still German sympathisers around. And then having to make these calculations in this bank vault, they were told they had six minutes to make the calculations because uh, if they could do that within six minutes, then the RAF could scramble Spitfire bombers, fighter bombers from Coltishall over the Dutch coast in time to attack the launchers before they would fully manage to get away clear. That was the theory. So I just thought that that was a very interesting role for a woman. And um, the, the woman whose life story I, or, or the insights into this I borrowed, a woman called Eileen Younghusband, my character bears no relationship to her, not least because I have her as a photo reconnaissance officer uh, rather than a filter room wife. But, you know, that was the inspiration for it. What's next for Robert Harris? I would quite like to get on with a new book, especially if we're going to have another winter of a winter of lockdown. It kept me sane slightly writing this one during the last lockdown. I have a, I have a few ideas. I only finished this in June, so you know, it's um, it's early days to actually be starting something. But yeah, no, I'd I'd like to get on with another one. Are you wedded to certain periods over over others? Well, I'm seeing myself as a political novelist, perhaps above all. I deliberately wrote the novels about Cicero as a, as a means of writing about politics, the timeless laws of politics. And I see uh, the Second World War as something that still influences our politics and our society today, the technology that we live in the shadow of the war. And you can't really understand what's going on in the world that we now live in without some knowledge of the Second World War, that it, you know, whether it be Britain's relationship with Europe or whatever. So I don't see myself as writing you know, novels about longbow men and that sort of thing. I see, I see the sort of novels that I write being very much to do with the, the modern world, if you can understand what I mean. So if, if I, I would love to find a historical subject that is some reflection or tells us something about how we're living today. That's when the light goes off in my head. 
Well, I think your officer and a spy about Dreyfus was a great example of that. I've, that sent chills through me with the sort of witch hunt and fake news and and sort of national the populism and nationalism of the time. Yeah, nothing changes. I mean, I think that that's one of the lessons that I've taken over th- th- nearly thirty years of writing fiction, that humanity doesn't really change, and the and the ways that we fall into society and organise ourselves don't really change. And it's incredibly useful to go back to periods and look at them as a means of writing and thinking about the present. I mean, you know, we've both been interested in the First and Second World Wars. We both remember how they both began with people saying it will all be over by Christmas. It's like a kind of human response to some cataclysmic upheaval in your own life. We've seen exactly the same phrases and exactly the same rhythms with this pandemic, you know, and now we're moving into the grim settling down phase which happened in those two wars. Well, thank you, Robert Harris. This one is called... It's called V2. It's published by Hutchinson, price £20 and available from all good booksellers. There you go, everybody. Go and check out V2. It's a great book. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Robert. Thanks, Dan. I enjoyed it a lot. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.